Hello, and welcome to Verse by Verse with Clinton de France. Is it wise to ignore God? Join us as we study Acts chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 33 through verse 42. Acts 5, beginning in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. And he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished. And all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In our last study, the first major conflict between the kingdom of Messiah and the powers of this world broke out when the apostles were arrested and imprisoned for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. God retaliated with the miraculous intervention in which an angel released the apostles from the jail and sent them back to the temple to continue unfazed in their work. The Supreme Court of the Jewish leaders had already gathered to taunt and intimidate the apostles into submission when they sent to have them brought from the prison and discovered they were gone. In fact, they were back in the temple preaching as before. So the officers of the Jews arrested the apostles again, this time with more care and respect, and brought them before the court to answer for their crimes. In what had become his standard form of spiritual boldness, Peter responded in Acts 5, verses 29 through 32, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God is exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Picking up in verse 33, When they heard this, they were furious. Literally, the word translated furious means cut to the quick or as some translations, cut to the heart. But it is a much more intense expression than the one used to describe the conviction of Peter's audience in Acts 2.37. 
The word carries the idea of violently sawing through something, and when applied to a man's thoughts, it referred to something that provoked the most extreme rage and indignation. Not conviction, but blind fury, and thus, Luke says, they plotted to kill them. And when we hear the word plotted, we might think of careful scheming and clandestine plans, but that's not the idea here. It simply means that their minds were immediately determined to silence the apostles by putting them to death. Evidently, some of them verbalized uh, their ideas, and maybe one began calling out that they should stone them or beat them to death right there on the spot. Verse 34, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Gamaliel is an extremely important figure in both biblical and secular history, and to appreciate his words in this narrative, we need to understand what we can about his character. As Luke informs us, he was a respected teacher of the law of Moses. In fact, some regard him as one of the seven most important teachers in the history of Judaism. His contemporaries shared that opinion. Like Thomas Aquinas, who is called the angelic doctor, Gamaliel was called the glory of the law. And it was written in the Talmud that when he died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died with him. To impress his credentials as an authority in the Jewish religion, the Apostle Paul informed that as a part of his training, he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, Acts 22 and verse 6. Perhaps most remarkable is Luke's testimony that he was respected by all the people, even in the bitterly divided and sectarian climate of Judean Judaism. Not only was there animosity between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were internally divided as well into two schools, one of which was ruled by Gamaliel during his lifetime, and yet even so, he was the first to receive the extraordinary title of Rabban, which means our master, rather than simply rabbi, which means my master, showing the universality of his appeal. The Pharisaic school, which Gamaliel led, had been established by his grandfather, a rabbi named Hillel. It was considered the more liberal of the two branches of Phariseeism, particularly on issues like Sabbath-keeping and divorce and remarriage, and Gamaliel was regarded as the embodiment of that moderate, non-fanatical spirit. There was a famous anecdote that he took a bath in an apartment in Ptolemaeus where there was a statue of a heathen goddess. When he was criticized and asked how he could reconcile that with the teaching of the law, he replied that the bath was there before the statue and that the bath was not made for the goddess but the statue for the bath. Well, that kind of reasoning was very sophisticated and shrewd for the circles with which he was associated. He was also unusually open-minded toward Greek education for a Pharisee. So it isn't particularly surprising to see him calling the enraged assembly to order and commanding them to put the apostles outside for a little while, which may have saved the apostles' lives in that moment. In verse 35, he begins to speak, and his words are as wise, it seems, as they are knowledgeable and educated. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. That is, think seriously about this matter, 
For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now, Theodos and Judas of Galilee were leaders of rebellions against Rome. This is the meaning of the expression, rose up. They evidently claimed to be the Messiah or a prophet or in some way an heir to David's throne. As Gamaliel put it, they claimed to be somebody. Because Theodos is mentioned before Judas of Galilee, it is assumed that his rebellion came first chronologically. And this would likely place Theodos about 5 BC, so just around the time Jesus was born. Of course, the Gospels confirm that the people were in expectation at that time. They were waiting for the Messiah. And they understood from various prophecies that had been and were being fulfilled among them that it should soon happen. So there were a number of cases like this, at least three such men, who led armed rebellions during the reign of Herod the Great. And although we do not have a specific attestation of this man and his work outside of the Bible, Gamaliel paints a clear picture. He was able to amass 400 followers, but once he was killed, they quit believing that he was somebody, and they went back to their lives as usual. A lot more is known about Judas of Galilee because the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus testifies about his rebellion. It took place in 6 AD during the second enrollment or census under Governor Quirinius. And with the assistance of a Pharisee named Sadduk, Judas established a movement set on the absolute independence of Israel from Roman rule. Among his followers, it was completely unlawful to pay any tribute to Caesar, and it was permissible to use any kind of lethal force for the preservation of Jewish freedom. He instigated a holy war until his death, at which time his sons took over the movement, which became the Zealot Party. Although this party continued to exist, and in fact to grow in fanaticism until it contributed to the Jewish wars that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, after the death of Judas and the later crucifixion of his sons, large numbers of his followers were dispersed, as Gamaliel says, and the strength of the movement waned. Verse 38, And now I say to you, keep away from these men, and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. I want to consider carefully Gamaliel's advice given here, and especially to ask whether it is good advice. Throughout the years, many Bible readers have praised Gamaliel as a hero. Some have even suggested that he was a closeted Christian. But is Gamaliel's advice good advice? Is this a fair and appropriate way to respond to the Christian gospel? Consider first the wisdom of Gamaliel's advice. No one can deny that it is a wise sentiment to express, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. If it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. There is a significant difference between that which originates with man and that which originates with God. 
There are human religions and philosophies in this world that exist alongside the true religion and the wisdom of God, but there is no legitimate comparison between them. It is common today to hear that all religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different, but in reality, human religion and the divine religion are fundamentally different and only superficially the same. The similarities should not surprise us. There was a time in history when all humans knew and worshipped the one true God, and all religion that they have formed since, after leaving him, has been a corruption of his. But human, religious, philosophical, and political movements are like the men who make them. Perhaps charming, but short-sighted. Perhaps creative, but insufficient. Perhaps momentarily successful in winning followers and creating devotees and salving the hurts and heartaches of some people, but ultimately... They are like the flower of the grass and will wither and die and disappear. It happens every time. Not so with the truth that comes from God. Like God, it is completely true and contains no error. Like God, it is perfectly sufficient to its purposes. Like God, it is eternally successful in all that it accomplishes, and it will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and systems and movements, and it will stand forever. So yes, there is wisdom in admonishing us not to trust in human things and not to resist the things of God. In that regard, there is also a valuable warning in Gamaliel's advice that it is possible for us, by the way we live on earth and the things we do, to fight against God, not to win. As he already noted, you cannot overthrow God, but to place ourselves on the wrong side so that we are working against him. And that means that we are on the side that will be overthrown. That means ruin and destruction in hell. But there is also a serious weakness in Gamaliel's advice. What was his real suggestion to his brothers on the Sanhedrin? Keep away from these men and let them alone. Ignore them. Don't pay any attention to them. Now, if they are men of the world, that would be just fine. And the clear implication is that in Gamaliel's mind, that was the truth. The Christian system was like all the others, and soon it should pass away. He was no closet Christian. History shows that he died a Jew, and he may have even authored a biting, anathematizing prayer against Christians later in life. But if that was the right option, then ignoring them would have been fine and even perhaps wise. However, what if they were not of men? Can you ignore God? Can you keep away from God and leave him alone? Friends, according to God's word, that is precisely what most of the people in the world fighting against him are trying to do. They're just living life and assuming that everything's going to turn out the way it should. Of course, it will, but they won't. The Apostle Paul indicted the Gentiles for their departure from God, which led them into all kinds of evil and idolatry. And it all started when, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. That is, they tried to ignore him. 
And now here is the Son of God manifesting himself to these men in power and great glory. Why, if Gamaliel had only taken a moment to think it over, he should have immediately seen the differences between Theodos and Judas of Galilee and Jesus of Nazareth. Those other men drew together a large following, and then they died, and the following disbanded. Jesus drew together a small following, and then he died, and the following grew. It was larger than ever before. Thousands were being added sometimes in a single day, and the center of growth was the very city where Jesus had been executed months earlier and where his tomb was located. How could this be? Throughout the history of earthly religion, virtually all religions have suffered a major division when their founder died. And the division came from fighting over who would be the successor. Not so with Christianity. Here are the apostles, but no one claims superiority over another. When Peter speaks during these trials and sermons, he never says I or me, but always we and us. And when men begin to praise him, he forbids them. And rebukes them, and he says things like, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. That's Acts chapter 3, verses 12 and 16. You see, the Christian movement wasn't having the experience of human movements. Something drastically different was taking place, and the Christians were explaining the reason. Jesus died, but he rose again. And there was no power struggle for control of the kingdom because he was still their leader. He was their king, ruling, working, blessing, and delivering them to that very moment. Now, if you are ignorant of something like that, if you try to leave that alone, you're doomed. Probably Gamaliel's intentions here were to prevent a riot that would draw the attention and aggression of the Roman authorities. But in doing so, in seeking to win favor with men, he spurned the advances of the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God invades the world to win it for his glory, neutrality is not support. As Jesus said it in Matthew 12 and verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. To use Gamaliel's own language, those who ignore the work of God to win and conquest the world and go on living as though he is not present, those who keep away from him and let him alone are in fact fighting against him. James 4 and verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whatever good sentiments may be able to be wrenched out of Gamaliel's advice by twisting and squeezing, in the end, it was bad advice. This may be clearly seen in its effects on the Sanhedrin. Verse 40 says, And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
They beat them, and they forbade them to continue preaching, but they agreed with Gamaliel. The great scholar of biblical biography, Alexander White, made this observation regarding Gamaliel. He was a politician. He was held in repute by all the people, but the people were blind, and they loved to be led by blind leaders, and Gamaliel was one of them. For at this supreme crisis of his nation's history, when there was not another moment to lose, this smooth-tongued opportunist came forward, full of wise saws and modern instances, but the flood was out and the time was past if there ever was a time for such fatal counselors as Gamaliel. His own opportunity has of late been passing with lightning speed, and now, when God in his long-suffering has given Gamaliel one last chance, he responds, Stay away. Leave it alone. Which in the end translates to beating and forbidding. Fighting against God. In stunning contrast, we see the apostles, verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This was no human movement. Threats, imprisonments, beatings, even death could not deter it. It was the work of God, built and based on the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever it suffered, it was sure to rise again. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, trust and obey.